Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We uh, continue our journey with our Lord as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. That's what we have been focused on for the last few weeks, beginning at the beginning of the end of last year. You know, while John, uh, the gospel writer, John records in his gospel several visits to Jerusalem, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record one visit and the most prominent one, which is his final journey to Jerusalem. In fact, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, we are told that Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi. Now, that is the north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and this is almost six months before the Passover. It's not even in our map here. Uh, and then um, both chapter 8 and 9 are around six months before the Passover. In chapter 9, verse 33, we are told that he is in Capernaum, which is his hometown. And between Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10, he sends messengers to make arrangements, uh, arrangements for him in Samaria. And Jesus and his disciples planned to go to Jerusalem through Samaria, which is a direct route to Jerusalem. But we are told in another gospel, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 56, we are told that the Samaritans refused him access, and that causes them to cross the Jordan and go around uh, through Perea. And so that's what is reflected here as they go around to Jerusalem. Mark 10 begins in this particular region, which is across the Jordan. We are still in this area as we come to today's passage, which is Mark 10, verse 32 to 52. You know, there are many ways in which we express our life as a Christian. We might say that the Lord saved me in such and such a year, let's say 2016. Or, I became a disciple of Christ, or a servant, or a slave of Jesus in 2016. Or you might say, I began following Jesus in 2016. As you consider those sentences, the Christian life you'll see is frequently compared to a journey. We are called and commanded to follow him, Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, we are commanded to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, in fact, to the Corinthians, Paul will write in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? And so he says, run in such a way that you may win. Paul, in fact, in his last letter, his letter to Timothy, he will write this at the very end of his life. I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I finished the, the race. I've kept the the faith. Some of us have been running this race for a number of years. Others have just joined in. This is not a 100-meter sprint. Uh, this is more like a marathon. You know, the second highest selling book in the world is a book that focuses on the journey of a believer uh, titled Pilgrim's Progress, published in 1678 by John Bunyan. And the section that we are in today begins, if you look at verse 32, it begins on the road. They were on the road, it says. And then it ends at the end of this chapter in verse 52. It says, 
and he began following him on the road. Uh, the text begins with Jesus' final and most detailed prophecy about his suffering. We'll find that in verse 32 to 34. It also tells us about the attitude that we must have if we are to follow him. And then in the last section, it concludes by sharing our Lord's final healing miracle and a lesson on what it looks like to be a committed follower of Christ. And because of the frequent comparison to a journey and the number of times that the word path and road and walking and following are mentioned, I've titled our lesson for today, The Path to Glory, The Path to Glory. Let me just give us some context for us as we consider this particular book. Our, our theme for the book of Mark is that Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant. There are three acts in a way that we can put it. Act one is Jesus' public ministry in and around Galilee, which Mark covers from chapter 1 to chapter 8, verse 26. Act two, which is Jesus' private ministry. You will hear about a number of conversations that he will have with his disciples on the way to Judea. That begins in verse 27 of chapter 8, and it ends in the section that we are in today. The next time, Lord willing, when we meet, we will begin with Act 3, which is his passion. He's found in Bethany and Bethphage as he gives instructions to his disciples to prepare. And so we'll find him there near Jerusalem, so in the triumphal entry in chapter 11. Uh, that brings us to the fact that we are in Act 2, and the, at the very an end of Act 2, there are three things that I want us to look at as we consider the path to glory. It's found through suffering and death, verse 32 to 34. Secondly, it's found through, or it is marked by a servant-hearted humility. And thirdly and finally, it's marked through uh, a steadfast commitment and seen through a steadfast commitment to the Lord. Uh, first of all, then, as we consider the first three verses, the path to glory is through suffering and death. Notice with me verse 32. They are on the road going up. They were on the road, rather, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Uh, they will mock him and uh, spit on him and, and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Let's begin by first considering the context how did we get here and what is going on here? Uh, Mark tells us that they, that is the Lord Jesus, and the 12 disciples and a large crowd, he says, were going up to Jerusalem. Remember, this is the time just before Passover. So there's this huge crowd going to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, from geography, we know that it's about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so no matter where you approach the city from, you were always going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus, we are told, is walking on ahead of the twelve and the crown, crowd. Now that is a remarkable statement, especially considering what he is about to tell them and what he has told them in the past. He is about to tell them, as we read, about his impending suffering and death. 
uh, his being ahead tells us that far from being a reluctant or an unwilling participant, far from being forced to suffer and die, that our Lord was a willing participant and he was obedient to his Father's will. John 10, uh, verse 17 and 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment that I've received from the Father. He is a willing participant. He is going on ahead of them. The disciples, we are told that they are amazed, and those who were following were fearful. Uh, there was perhaps something that they saw in him, perhaps the determined stride in his steps, perhaps uh, the way he was walking, uh, perhaps the decisive look in his eyes, or perhaps an overall demeanor of our Lord was one that displayed resolve and purpose. There was something unique and purposeful about our Lord as he walked on ahead of them. Uh, this amazed them, says Mark. And then the rest of the followers were fearful. Uh, John, in his gospel, as I mentioned earlier, tells us about a number of visits that our Lord made to Jerusalem. And there, the, our Lord encountered the, the leaders and the authorities. And so walking with Jesus is, is a risky affair. And that is one of the reasons that they would be fearful to be seen with, with Jesus. And so noticing the fear and amazement, he takes the twelve aside and he begins to tell them what was going to happen, verse 33. And in the process of taking them aside, he gives them the final and the most detailed passion prediction. A prediction, a, a prophecy of his suffering. That brings us secondly to the content of what he says. Uh, this, as I mentioned, is the third prediction. If you were to turn in your Bibles to chapter 8, verse 31, that is the first prediction. And there he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And that is the first one. The second one is Mark chapter 9 verse 31. There he says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And here again, verse 33 and 34, he tells them what is about to happen to the Son of Man. He says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a term that points to many aspects of his being. Uh, at least four, I would say. One is his humanity. Uh, we heard about that in the morning. Jesus Christ was truly a human being. He came in the flesh, 1 John 4, 2. Not only that, it points to his humility. Uh, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is eternal in nature, God of very God, yet he was also one who was despised and rejected by men. Uh, Paul captures this well in Philippians 2 when he writes, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, uh, but emptied himself, taking the form of a born servant, and being made in the likeness of men, the Son of Man, his humanity, his humility. But the title also points to his deity. You know, as a Son of Man, he forgave sin, Mark chapter 2. 
He was the Lord of the Sabbath. And at his trial before the high priest, when he was placed under oath, remember in Matthew 26, uh, he was asked to tell us whether he is the Christ, the Son of God. And here is what he says. Jesus said to them, you said you have said it to your you have said it yourself rather nevertheless i tell you hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on in the clouds of heaven in other words this statement uh, is one that he affirms that he is god because this statement immediately ended the trial as the sanhedrin caught on to that statement and then accused jesus of blasphemy Uh, That is, they accused him of claiming to be God and they condemned him to death in the next couple of verses, verse 65 and 66. Uh, So the title displays his humanity, his humility, uh, his deity, but also the title is in reference to uh, a prophecy that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. So it's a fulfillment of a prophecy as well. And he says, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests. What are some things that he says as a part of the prophecy? Well, at least eight things uh, against each uh, uh, verb. I've mentioned which chapter it is mentioned in. And you can see that by far chapter 10 covers everything, including that, is that which is mentioned in chapter 9 and 8. Uh, and also I've mentioned where it is that this particular prophecy is fulfilled. What are some things that he says? He says, he will be delivered. Uh, That word delivered means also or translated as betrayed. He will be betrayed. He knew who would betray him. He he will be condemned to death. He will be sentenced to die. Uh, But the chief priests and scribes knew uh, the fact that they could not execute him. Uh, They did not have the authority to do so. And so he also says here he will be handed over to the Gentiles, that is the Romans. He will be mocked. He will be spit upon. He will be scourged. He will be killed. Uh, That is, he will end up dying. And then he also prophesies the fact that he will rise again from the dead. Now, how, how did he know all of these things? How did he know that this was going to happen to him? The same way that he knows all things, John 16, uh, 30. He knew what was in man. Uh, he knew not only what was in man, he also knew what was in a fish. Remember that incident? He instructed Peter. Matthew 17, he says, as these uh, tax collectors uh, asked him why he was not paying taxes, and he says, go to the sea and throw in a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. The same way he, he knows that, he also saw Nathaniel under the fig tree when Nathaniel thought no one saw him. Uh, he knew the history of the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. He knew who would uh, betray him. He knew the thoughts of men. And then Paul summarizes this well when he says, In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden. Uh, Jesus, you know, he knows everything. He is God. He knows all things. His divine omniscience is on display here. That's how he knows. But what are some things that we can draw from uh, this prophecy? What are some lessons that we can draw? Uh, First of all, we learn that the path to glory is marked by suffering. The path to glory is marked by suffering. Now, we're talking here about our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, What happens to him will also happen 
to his disciples and those who claim to follow him, not in the same way, but we are here referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. The path to glory is marked by suffering and death. You know, God determined that sending his son as a baby into this world, who would grow up one day, who would live like one of us, any one of us, uh, if you were to be in the first century in Israel, he would be look, looking and we'll, he'll be talking like any one of us, and yet he would be one without sin. God determined that his pain, his suffering, and his death on the cross would be the only way in which sinful people like you and me would be saved. The entire uh, sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to this one sacrifice, and this was indeed the Lamb of God who took away or takes away the sins of the world. And this was the only sacrifice that would be acceptable to God. Uh, while all other sacrifices before this merely covered the sins, or covered sins, uh, this sacrifice removed sins. Uh, to the disciples, no wonder on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, as they expressed uncertainty and astonishment at what was, what was happening in Jerusalem, he would say to them, verse 25 and 27 to 27 in Luke chapter 24, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? You see, the way for Jesus to enter into his glory, as we learn from even John 17, verse 5, that he had set aside some aspect of his glory, not set, set, set aside his divinity, but set aside some aspect of his glory. He says the way for Jesus to enter into his glory was for him to suffer these things. And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Uh, first of all, then, the path to glory is marked by suffering and death. Uh, secondly, as he prophesizes these things, he is confirming the fact that he indeed was the Messiah. He indeed was the Messiah. He indeed was the one that the scriptures prophesied about. He indeed is the one that you can look back to 2,000 years back as someone who fulfilled that prophecy. And there's no one else coming. He alone is the Messiah, the anointed one. Not only uh, that, thirdly and finally, that the disciples would be comforted knowing these things. Here is someone who is telling them up front what is going on. Happen. In fact, he even says in John 16, 33, he says, this, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. He is far from being a helpless victim, a willing participant in what is going on. And as the disciples thought of this, they knew he is the Lord. As he ascended and as they started ministering in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, they began reflecting on the fact that he had already told us what was going to happen. He is the sovereign Lord of history. The path to glory is marked through suffering and death. But understanding that the path to glory is marked by suffering is important. It's important because once that is understood, then it will bring a change in our attitude. You know, while Jesus is instructing them, telling them what was going to happen to him about the pain and suffering that he was to undergo, you would think that they would have some questions about it. You would think that they would want him to explain a few more things about what was going to happen. But far from asking him what was about to happen, they're still focused on themselves. 
Secondly, then, the path to glory is marked through servant-hearted humility. Notice verse 35. The path to glory is marked through servant-hearted humility. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Uh, two of Jesus' disciples approach him. Matthew, in his account of this event, tells us that it was their mother who approached him first. Uh, they were not even confident enough. They thought if they put their mother forward, perhaps he will listen. Uh, if you look at the general evidence of the text, uh, their mother is Salome, who is one of Jesus' mother's sister. Uh, if you combine the four accounts, that's what you come to as a conclusion. And so John and James then were cousins of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing that their cousin, that is Jesus, could indeed be the Messiah, they approach him with this statement, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It almost sounds like the time, for those of you who have children, you know, they approach you saying, Dad or Mom, we, we have a request, uh, but before we tell you what it is, we just want you to say yes. <laughs> you know, it uh, almost sounds like that. But our Lord, being the God that he is, does not fall for it and rightly asks, what do you want me to do for you? So when you come in your glory, Lord, could you grant that we sit on your right and on your left? You have to give one thing to these brothers. Their theology is right in the sense that they correctly identify that Christ is going to come back in glory. But their request displays a puffed and a puffed up and a proud heart, doesn't it? So that is their request. We want to sit on your right, on your left, when you come back in glory. Notice our Lord's response, verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You have, in other words, no idea what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That is, are you able to suffer like I I'm about to suffer. Or are you able to drink the, or are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Uh, that is, are you able to die like I am going to die? You know, in the flow of the moment, they say, yes, yes, Lord, we are able. And here, Lord, our Lord makes another prediction. Uh, the cup that I drink, he says, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And that does turn out to be true, actually, in, in their case. Uh, because James becomes the second martyred Christian, uh, first apostle to be martyred, but second after Stephen. Uh, that is mentioned in Acts chapter 12. He was executed by Herod with the sword. And then John uh, actually becomes the last apostle to die for Christ. He was exiled, remember, to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. So they did drink the cup that Jesus drank and they were baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. But at the time that they answered, yes, we are able, they had no idea that they would go through suffering and, and death that would follow them for following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while they flippantly respond that they are up to the task, uh, what Jesus reminds them is revealing. He tells them, verse 40, to sit on my right or on my left, that's not mine to 
give. You will suffer and you will die, but you sh who should sit on my right or left is for those for whom it is prepared by the Father. They are positions of honor that the Father will bestow on him or her who seems best to fit that position. You know, James and John act like the ones who go to an event and seek the positions of honor. Proverbs does have a few things to say about that. We would like to sit on your right or on your left. What, what pride comes through? What self-centeredness? Uh, what haughtiness? In fact, Jesus had told them, uh, recorded in Matthew 19, that they, as the apostles, that when he comes in the regeneration, when he sits on his glorious throne, that each one of them will also sit on the twelve thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. But that wasn't enough for James and John. And not only that, even within the twelve, we know from the rest of the gospel that they, James, John, and Peter were the, the three that were more specifically on whom the Lord focused on. They were eyewitnesses to his majesty, one that we saw in uh, Mark chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so not only were they part of the twelve, they were part of the three. By the way, uh, just as, as a side note, nothing wrong in desiring good things. Uh, nothing wrong in desiring to grow. Uh, nothing wrong even in desiring certain positions and responsibilities with the right motivation. Uh, today morning we saw Brandon's presentation as an elder candidate. In fact, in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And so it's nothing wrong to desire these things for the glory and honor of our great God. But instead of being humble and being broken and desiring things for the right reasons, uh, they began to think highly of themselves. Uh, they were marked by pride. And while John and James were marked by pride in their thinking, you would think that the rest of the disciples were really a humble lot. But notice verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. It's not that they were humble, and so they were shocked at the audacity of James and, and John. They were really indignant. This is not righteous indignance. Uh, this is not righteous anger. This is unrighteous anger. They were angry and upset that John and James really made it first to, to the Lord. Right? If they got the two seats, what about us? And so Jesus calls them to himself, verse 42. That's where we draw our two lessons from. He says, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I struggled with this passage a lot because there's so much that should be talked about and said, but this verse, verse 45, is a part of the rest of the verses that we also need to, to cover. And so uh, a couple of things that I'll mention, I've mentioned the lessons already, but one thing, one phrase that is an oxymoronic kind of a phrase is a proud Christian. Uh, there is or should be no such a thing as a proud Christian. But here we have two lessons. One is Christ's way 
And secondly, we have Christ's example. Uh, what is Christ's way? Uh, Christ's way is displayed in a servant-hearted humility. You see, the world's way is self-promotion. It is to be an aggressive go-getter. It is to be a fighter. It is to build your own empire, or like the Burger King philosophy, which we talked about in the past, uh, you know, be or do it your own way. Do it in your own strength. See, the world's way is self-promotion. Uh, the rulers of this world, our Lord says, uh, their way of leadership is high-handedness. Uh, it's that they exercise authority by demanding respect, uh, by demanding obedience. Uh, there is a heavy-handedness in how others are treated. And that's how the world works. But in sharp contrast to how the world works, here we find our Lord's way is one of humble servant attitude. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Really nothing wrong with that. But the path there goes through this street called servant-hearted humility. You cannot, you cannot be great in God's kingdom unless you're willing with God's help to be and develop a servant-hearted heart or humility. You see, in the kingdom of God, the way up is really the way down. You cannot be first among all unless you're ready to be a slave of all. You know, there are two words that our Lord uses there. Uh, one is the word servant, verse 43. And then in verse 44, it's the word slave. You know, a servant literally served, like serving tables. Uh, but a slave, a slave is even more of a humble position. Uh, that is the second word there, doulos. Uh, it's sometimes translated also as servant, but really the accurate translation is the word slave. Uh, while, a servant uh, while a servant served, a slave was really owned by someone else. He had a master. Uh, Christ is the one who calls, and whom he calls, he calls to die. Uh, die to himself and to live to Christ. It was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Uh, that is quite the calling. This is not an easy calling. In verse 34 of chapter 8, our Lord summons his disciples to himself and he says to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Uh, this is not a matter of checking a box in your spiritual journey. Uh, this is the kind of commitment that will test you. It will demand everything you've got. And it is one that is impossible to do in your own strength. And so he says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Uh, we have Christ's way, which is one of sacrifice and submission and denying yourself and taking cross taking up your cross and following him and then we also have Christ's example uh, we have an example in Christ of what it means to be servant-hearted if we want to know what servant-hearted humility looks like we don't need to go any further than our Lord himself what can we say about him well, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty 
you might become rich. Hebrews 4.15, the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Luke 22.27, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not one who reclines at the table, at least from a world's perspective? But our Lord says, I'm, one, I'm among you as one who serves. Observe also in verse 45, it says, For the Son of Man, again the same phrase, same title rather, Son of Man, did not come to be served. He says he, he came, he came to serve, implying uh, that his existence was before his incarnation. He did not begin to exist when he was born. He already existed before. Therefore, he could say in John 8:58 to the crowd, he would say, before Abraham was, I am. And uh, the crowd knew exactly what he was claiming to be, and so he, they picked up stones to, to stone him. He came. Notice also the fact that the very depth of his humility was his purpose to give his life. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve, and he did that by giving his life. It's a wonderful book uh, called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to This World, or Jesus Came, uh, and John Piper actually goes through 50 reasons. He says there could be many more, and this is one of them. He says he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. How far did he go? In setting an example, he was willing to die for me and for you, and he did. Uh, the word there for ransom is the word used to describe the price that is paid for the release of the slave. His death, his sacrifice, his ransom was acceptable to God. Uh, the ransom was not paid to Satan, as some erroneously think about it. No, the ransom was paid to, to God. It was his wrath that Jesus appeased when he died. And it was his stamp of approval on G Jesus in raising him from the dead. In fact, uh, turn with me to Romans 3, verse 23. We'll look at a couple of verses that follow that. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the reality of this fallen world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is the problem. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace, that is, we have been given grace through the redemption, through the ransoming, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, through faith. In other words, a sacrificial offering made on the mercy seat to God to avert his wrath and to restore men. Uh, this was, he goes on to say, to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he pa passed over the sins previously committed. Uh, in other words, the ransom was paid to God. Paul, in his letter to Corinthians, he would write in 1 Corinthians 6 20, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 
just as a side note, I know, I know it's a big, huge discussion within the Christian world. Uh, the ransom, it says, was paid for many, not for all. Uh, which is to say, if it was paid for all, all would be saved. None would be in hell. But there are men and women who have rejected Christ and are even now spending eternity apart from him. That brings us to the last section. So we've looked at the path to glory for our Lord was through suffering and, and death. The path to glory was through a servant-hearted humility. And thirdly and finally, the path to glory for a disciple is through a steadfast commitment. Now what is expected but missing from the disciples is found in a poor blind beggar. The interesting thing about this story is that Jesus asked the same question to John and James, verse 36, that he will now ask the blind beggar that we will meet. And the question is this, what do you want me to do for you? Now John and James's answer revealed a selfish, a self-promoting and an arrogant heart. The blind beggar's answer will reveal a heart that displays faith and his attitude would display a steadfast commitment to follow Christ as a disciple of Christ. You see, the path of glory is through suffering and death, through servant-hearted humility, and thirdly, through a steadfast commitment. Notice, first of all, the setting of this story. Verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Notice that we have now crossed the Jordan River and we are now in Jericho. Mark and Matthew tell us uh, that he was leaving Jericho, as we find here. Luke says Jesus was approaching Jericho. And so, which, which is it? Was he leaving or was he approaching some have given a couple of options. One option is that there is a possibility that there were two Jerichos, one the old city and one the new city. Uh, the newer city was refurbished and built by Herod and his son, Archelaus, and it was beautified. It, it had a theater and an amphitheater. So that is one option. But if that is the case, there would be some mention by Luke or one of the gospel writers, but there's no mention of an old and a new city. What is far more likely is that the interaction, the point of interaction, and the point of where the miracle actually took place happened at two different places. And so you can look at it that way and come to the conclusion that there is no contradiction between those accounts. So we have a disciples. Uh, we have his disciples. We have a large crowd that is here, verse 46. And we are told that there is a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Uh, we are given a name because it is likely that he became known as a disciple of Jesus a little later, perhaps after his ascension. And so we're given a name. And once he started mixing and getting to know others, people could identify him as the one who was the blind beggar on the road to Jericho, Bartimaeus. Next, we see a stubborn resolve, a stubborn resolve or a stubborn faith rather, as soon as he found out that it was Jesus the Nazarene, verse 47, he knew who it was. Now he had perhaps heard about him and found out that this man was not like the other men that he had known, not like the other swindlers and fake healers. This man 
he uh, understood was, was a real person. Not only was he real, he is also the Messiah. Notice in verse 47 and 48, he calls him. He, he, he cries out to him. The word there is literally screams at the top of his lungs. A Jesus, which means as we learn even in the morning, Yahweh saves or Jehovah saves. Uh, and then he says the son of David. The son of David was another term for the Messiah. And so he calls out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Pity me. Be merciful towards me. Can you imagine a blind man, uh, a beggar, uh, and as well as a beggar, two conditions that often go along with each other, shouting and identifying Jesus correctly? While most, including his own disciples, often misunderstood his identity and his mission many times, it is a beggar, and that to one who cannot see with his physical eyes, who accurately identifies Jesus for who he is with his spiritual eyes. But the moving and the busy crowd did not have time for such a request, so they tell him to be quiet. Uh, they sternly told him, verse 48, many were sternly telling him to be quiet. And they sternly told him to be quiet, but he kept crying out and screaming all the more. It's remarkable to see the stubbornness and the resolve of this man. He perhaps thought to himself, and perhaps God's spirit impressed upon his heart, this is his only chance. If I miss him, I don't know when my opportunity will come again. It's like what Pastor Tom was telling in the morning. Coming to the end of yourself in desperation, crying out to Christ, O oh Lord, save me, have mercy on me. We see also, as we consider the stubborn faith, the compassionate Savior, as we look at his response. As this throng of people are moving, heading towards Jerusalem, in the midst of all the noise, our Lord hears a cry for mercy. What does he do? Verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. He stops and perhaps the ent entire throng along with him stops as well. He says, call him here. In the midst of all the busyness and urgency of the task ahead of him, our Lord, after all, was on his way to Jerusalem Remember, this, this is the pivotal point in the history of the world where the salvation of humanity hangs. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. In the midst of a crowd, a blind beggar calls him. He knows that he would himself be betrayed and condemned to death, being handed over to the Romans to be executed. That is what he had come for. And so he was approaching a pivotal moment in the history of the world. His, his death would accomplish salvation for so many. With all that is going on, he stops and perhaps turns and calls and says, call, call him, call him here. If you think of that event, you think of a compassionate Savior. He has time for the rich, as, as, as we saw last week, and he has time for the poor. He has time for the scholar, and he has time for the one who is not a scholar. He has time for a sinful man, and he has time for a sinful woman. A story is told of Charles Summer, who served as a senator from Massachusetts a long time back. He died in 1874. He served as a senator from that state, and as a politician, Charles, on his part, had taken up the cause of a minority group that existed at that time. 
and so busy and so engrossed was he in the cause of this minority group that his every living moment was occupied with the cause of this minority group. One day, Julia Howe, who is the author and poet, is credited with the hymn, Battle Hymn of the Republic, was talking to Charles Summer. And while she was talking, she approached him on behalf of an individual who came from that minority group. Uh, this individual, she said, wanted a few minutes with the senator. Senator Summer answered, Julia, I've become so busy with his cause that I can no longer concern myself with an individual. And without missing a beat, Julia responded, Charles, that is quite remarkable. Even God has not reached that stage yet. <laughs> Our Savior has time for you. While busy men may or may not find time for the individual, God always has time for the individual. And we see that here. In fact, our Lord's half-brother will remind us, James 4.8, uh, he will say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so to Jesus' invitation, the crowd tells him to come to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Verse 51. Bartimaeus says to him, Rabboni, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. One commentator writes, Mark's Rabboni must not be downgraded. It probably is to be interpreted as a title, which in such cases is equivalent to Matthew's and Luke's Lord. Lord, he says, I want to regain my sight. Uh, there's no delay in the miracle. Notice verse 52. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. There's no delay. He immediately regained his sight. It was instantaneous. Another thing that was immediate was that he began following Jesus on the road, verse 52, at the end. He became a convert and he became a disciple. You see, to follow Jesus is to become his disciple. So as we come to the end of this section, what are some things that we can draw from this particular passage? Uh, first of all, a physical blindness that is mentioned in this passage, serves as a metaphor for spiritual blindness. Uh, this was a lesson for both the crowd and the disciples. Uh, while we are surrounded externally by many times by our barriers to, uh, that, that hurt our ability to see our God and call on Him, our issue really is not the, the outside but the inside. We are spiritually blind. Uh, we have all sinned, as we read Romans uh, chapter 3, and fallen short of God's glory, of God's standard. You see, there are many who can see perfectly with their physical eyes, but they're spiritually blinded. In the story, there is physical healing, but far more significant than physical healing is the spiritual healing of Bartimaeus. Uh, this is evidenced in the fact that once he was healed, he began following Jesus. But secondly, and importantly, our faith needs to be anchored in Jesus. Our faith needs to be anchored in Jesus. Bartimaeus believed that Jesus was not like the other rabbis that he had, that he had come across, or perhaps other religious leaders, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, who thought that poverty or blindness or bad circumstances were always a result of God's judgment. 
And so he appeals to who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the son of David. And so he appeals to Jesus for mercy, the only one who could have mercy on him. Isn't it the writer of Hebrews who says in Hebrews 11:6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This blind beggar understood this truth, and so he persistently and earnestly sought the Lord, and his actions reflected the kind of faith that is pleasing to God. It was because the object of his faith was the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. His faith then is anchored in Jesus' mercy, and so must ours be as well. Thirdly and finally, in tying with the theme of this particular section, we see a stubborn faith that plows through barriers. We see a stubborn faith that plows through barriers. You know, Bartimaeus at had at least two handicaps in reaching Jesus. His blindness and also the negative crowd that did not want him to, to scream and shout, did not want him to get anywhere near Christ. And because of his blindness, he could not see Jesus. And because of his, the, the negativity of the crowd, he could not reach Jesus. But in spite of the blindness and the crowd, he used what he did to reach Jesus. He used his voice and he used his ears. I don't know what season of life you are in right now. Perhaps some difficulty, some challenge. Uh, perhaps uh, some things going on that are making it difficult for you to respond well. But our faith is a great reminder to, be, uh, to think of this, that it needs to be anchored in Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And secondly, also the fact that we need to continue to show stubbornness in, in our resolve in following our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Well, we thank you for this passage. I thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks to us. I thank you that you sent your son, the living word. He was in the beginning, and he became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And there was a purpose for which he came to this world. He came to die. He came not to be served, as our text reminded us, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For those of us who are in you, we are so thankful for this grace and mercy that you've extended to us in Christ Jesus. Perhaps there's some here who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. So my prayer for them, Lord, is that they would call out to you, just as this blind beggar did, and sought mercy from you. Prayer is that they would plead to you for having mercy on them. As your word confirms to us that those who earnestly seek you, you will in no way or no wise cast them. And so I pray, Lord, that you would save some according to your plan and purpose. I pray for our week that is ahead of us. Help us to continue to display a servant-hearted humility. Help us to catch ourselves when we think too highly of ourselves. Help us to be gentle and compassionate as our Lord was. I commit the rest of today and the rest of this week into your hands. Help us to live for you, O oh Lord. In Jesus' precious and worthy name I pray. Amen.